I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. We have a great episode ahead. My guest for today is Dr. Janine Anderson. And Janine is an incredible speaker. She has her own podcast. She's an author of beautiful books, and she is a psychologist in Colorado with a lot of experience. So I'm not even going to say anymore. We're just going to jump right into this episode. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited to introduce to all of you our guest, Dr. Janine Anderson. Janine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invite. I'm excited to have our talk today. I am thrilled and listeners don't know this, but it took us quite some time to get our sound going correctly. So hopefully you're all able to hear clearly everything that Janine has to share with us. So Janine, can you say a little bit about yourself? Tell tell the listeners who you are, what you do. You do incredible work in Colorado. You have a podcast, you've written books. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for teeing me up. Um, Well, by training, I am a licensed psychologist and I'm also a certified eating disorder specialist and a certified eating disorder specialist supervisor through IADEP. Um, I'm the founder and director of Colorado Therapy and Assessment Center, which is a multi-site insurance-based clinic in Colorado. Uh, So we have a couple locations and we specialize in eating disorder work, but we also do a lot of general mental health. I am the host and the the founder of the Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. Um, And then also I have a couple of books out currently. One is called Recover Your Perspective. And then there is a companion book that goes along with it, Meditations for Eating Disorder Recovery. Um, And that book corresponds with the concepts from Recover Your Perspective. On the personal side, I am nearly a native Coloradan. I've lived here since I was about two or three. Um, Absolutely love it here. I am a huge baseball fan. My home team, the Rockies, is not having such a hot season right now, which is pretty rough. Uh, And I am a serious, serious animal lover. I have a dog and three cats right now. (laughs) So uh, hopefully they don't crash the podcast. (laughs) So 
you have a full house during the pandemic and we have had many animals come and crash podcasts. So (laughs) we always say we welcome, we welcome all animals. So Janine, say a little bit, I'm, I'm actually just going to jump right in. You know, one of the things that I, I know about you about from the books that you've written and from the way you practice is you incorporate three theories, Mm -hmm. CBT, which for listeners is cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, and ACT, which is acceptance commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, my first question is, is do you utilize these theories because they were helpful in your own recovery? A, A lot of us in the field sort of navigate, or at least I will speak for myself, I I mostly, my therapeutic style mostly comes from what I felt like I had needed in mm-hmm. my own recovery process. So can you speak a little to it? Sure. I probably should have said that in my introduction that I also identify as a recovered professional. Um, but yes, I do use those three theories. Um, I think in the, I'm known for that, I guess a little bit more publicly because my first book is based on those three theories. Um, but being somebody who works with eating disorders, um, and then also has been through the recovery process herself, um, I tend to be very integrative. So I draw from a lot of theories and actually CBT, DBT, and ACT are an important part of my work. Um, But those are the things that I draw from when I'm working with a patient and I use patient and client interchangeably. So I'm sorry about that. I don't mean to offend anyone uh, listening Um, for uh, more skills based work. Um, But I I really tend to think about our um, problems through a different lens, uh, primarily interpersonal process, not to get too into the weeds and also try to draw on some multicultural and feminist frames too. And part of that is because the approaches that I use, yes, definitely mirrored what I needed uh, to kind of get to the root of my eating disorder. Um, basically, um, prioritizing working on healing uh, from early emotional experiences that continued to replicate themselves later in my life, early relational experiences that I continued to replicate later in my life. Um, but also as a provider, uh, if anyone out there were to look up and do the research on what are the, you know, we use the phrase like evidence-based practice, um, what are the best practices, so to speak, for eating disorders? There aren't a lot of good ones. There, There's minimal evidence. There's no prevailing framework that um, it, there's no clear winner. And because of that, because of my own experiences and because of working in a private practice setting, uh, I tend to draw from a lot of different approaches and to try to, uh, you know, understand each person individually, um, because I feel like that is um, how my own healing has happened as well. So though I have a whole book about the skills related to CBT, DBT, and ACT, uh, and I, I teach about ACT frequently in um, things like uh, EDRD Pro. Um, I'm not uh, 
dogmatic about what we what we need to use to help people heal. It's different for every person. And I really only care about whether, you know, people feel better and get better. Yeah. Yeah. The eating disorder is not the function of one thing. It's of many. And so Mm -hmm. not every model is going to be able to reach every situation. If that makes sense. I know that was a little bit wordy. So I, I feel, I feel the same way. Do you think you could explain to listeners about ACT and how you apply it to working with eating disorders? Because I'm pretty sure that most people are familiar with CBT and DBT, but I Mm -hmm. don't know about ACT, if people are very, very aware of what that model is like. Sure. ACT is uh, under the broad umbrella of cognitive behavioral approaches, but it differs in that uh, one of the things that ACT doesn't do is it doesn't require or really um, have as a goal for people to change the content of what of their thoughts. So it doesn't ask for people to change what they are thinking. It helps pe- for people to change how they relate with their internal experiences, like thoughts, feelings, memories, physical sensations, and that sort of thing. So ACT is based on increasing, being able to live out one's values, um, and then also to increase the flexibility that we that we have with with life and not being too rigid about things. Uh, that's an extremely nutshell version. I'm sure if I went to an ACT conference, they would be very mad at me for summarizing that way. Um, but if we're really boiling it down, that's uh, that's how it differ, differs in that, you know, CBT wants for people to uh, challenge and, and actually change what uh, what thoughts they're repeating to themselves. And uh, like I said, I'm not uh, dogmatic about any particular approach. I think there's a lot of value in all different approaches and people gravitate toward um, different ones for different reasons. I think you brought up something very interesting and we talk about it often on the show, which is values. And if we ask somebody, are you living within your values? Nine times out of 10, when they have an eating disorder, I'm actually going to go as far as saying 10 times out of 10, your values do not align with the eating disorder. And that can be really powerful work when we start working on what is it that you value? Is it honesty? Well, nobody is honest in their eating disorder. Is Mm -hmm. it connection? Well, you cannot connect with another soul to soul if you're in your eating disorder mind. Is it flexibility? Then the eating disorder is very rigid. You know what I mean? So I love bringing in values. I think it's a very, it's, it's just a way that people can organize their thoughts and take a step back and say, wait a minute, I don't know if this eating disorder is doing for me what I had originally intended it to do. And I would argue that it it can't like you're an eating disorder. So I come from the frame uh, that I think of the eating disorder as a separate process or a separate thing that a person experiences. Your eating disorder is not who you are. Um, And 
it comes with some things that we can, we can, we, we know for sure. So even though everybody's eating disorder is different and everybody develops an eating disorder for different reasons and different factors and different levels of uh, privilege and experiences of oppression, all kinds of things. At the end of the day, we can expect, I think, a few things from eating disorders and eating disorders have their own kind of value set. And one of the things that my book is about, Recover Your Perspective, is that eating disorders are self-propagating. They just want to continue. So everything that your eating disorder is asking you to do, prompting you to do, is in service of keeping the eating disorder going. It's not in service of you being able to experience a lot of connection or to be honest and the things that tend to be people's more um, authentic uh, values that have nothing to do with the eating disorder are things that actually disrupt the eating disorder behaviors. It's difficult to continue to do behaviors uh, to use the eating disorder if you are uh, really wanting to be honest. Because everybody who has an eating disorder, you have to lie to keep up you know, the secret and keep it going. It's just part of the deal. You know, it, it often makes me think of, I've had a lot of clients who have said to me point blank. So clients that, that have, I'm, I'm saying, repeating myself. So forgive me, everyone. Clients have said, I value thinness. Mm. And I'm like, nope. It goes so much farther than that. Go underneath that. Nope, Karen, I just value thinness. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it, and and it, uh, I keep saying, why, why? It makes me feel pretty. Okay, then what? Well, then mm-hmm. I'll have a lot of friends and be seen and be connected. I'm like, oh, right there. We just found the value. You don't value thinness. You value being seen and connected. And I think clients think that that's going to stop a therapist. Like, well, can't go past that one. And it absolutely (laughs) is like, whoa, go underneath. What's underneath that? That's what it just made me think of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we do in, in my practice and talk about when we pull in like feminist and multicultural perspectives is like an interesting question is, well, where did you get that value? Why do we value thinness so much? Why is everybody so obsessed with thinness? And then we can kind of help clients untangle why, how did that get linked up as the thing that was associated with goodness and with belonging and approval and success and we talk about how there there are different value sets that we're exposed to, right? So, um, you know, of course, I'm speaking as an American here, but like you, you're going to experience things like valuing work and valuing independence in ways that are different from other places in the world. And diet culture has its own set of values too, which is being thin, being young, being white, being able-bodied. Um, being straight, all of it is preferred. And that is what's good and what's best. And we can kind of pull apart, help clients pull apart, that that is not what their values are. That is the value set 
that comes along with diet culture as it lives right now. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you and I, I want to hear how you would answer this. Mm-hmm. So I will say things similar to that. Like, is this your value or is this the cultural value? Things like that. And then clients will say to me, even if it's not my value, I live in a culture that values it. So I must adapt to it. I can try to be unique on my own, but I don't think that that's going to get me anywhere if the rest of the culture feels they're they're all in this diet culture thing. Now, now by the way, I I I know I get this question all the time, so I know how I answer, but I'm I'm curious, Janine, how do you answer that? Um, first of all, with a lot of humility and compassion, because actually living your life, um, feeling like you do not belong in your own culture, um, is an extremely, extremely painful experience. And, um, I also want to just kind of recognize the privileged identities that I hold in saying this. And I don't take that. I don't take that lightly. and I, I do tell clients and I've written about and talked about on my podcast that uh, recovery is counterculture um, and that it, it's very, very hard um, to be the person who feels like they are the odd one out. But also there are people who don't um, embody diet culture's values. There are pockets of those people And it's important to find those people as we all do the work, especially people who have more resources and more bandwidth, recovered people, allies of recovered people to change things culturally. Is that going to happen overnight? No. Is it going to be very painful for people to exist uh, as they are? Of course. Um, And that is really hard. And it's hard to hold, it's hard to live that way. And it's hard to hold that pain for people knowing we can't resolve it for everyone. But I also don't think at all that the answer is, well, diet culture is kind of the predominant thing. So let's go along with it. I also point out that it may be the predominant, but it's not everywhere, similar to what Mm. you were saying. So there's a lot of black and white thinking in that, like everybody is involved. Nope. Mm -hmm. Also, what what I talk about is, at least from my own experience, as I moved through the recovery process, my, my relationship to my body, my relationship to beauty, my relationship to where I fit in the world completely changed. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the things that people have a difficult time understanding because they're not there yet they imagine they're still going to be in the same mind frame, just in a different body or, you know, whatever it is. And what I say to them is, no, you're right. We can't change diet culture, but I can change the way you view what diet culture is doing to you, the way you, what you perceive as beauty. It doesn't have to be the beauty that diet culture has conjured up in your head. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's hard for people because they're not there yet to imagine that they'll ever get to a place like that. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just relating with what you were saying and thinking about, okay, if I were to go back in time and tell uh, my my younger self who is uh, actively working on recovery, uh, if I were to try to describe what my life uh, would be like at this point and how I would feel about food and movement in my body at this point, I would absolutely not believe that <laughs> at all. Um, and so part of it is, is having faith. And I mean that, you know, in the secular sense of the term, um, that we recovered professionals are not out there because we've all had easy lives and easy journeys and we have all the answers and we have only privileged identities. And that is why we recover. Um, it's because we have had some experiences and we've seen many clients and patients also who have totally different lives have experiences of recovery. And we know that it is something that can happen. So kind of knowing that one day things can feel different for you, um, it can be a really powerful motivator and having some hope that it, it might be different, even though it feels bad in the, in the present. Yep. And I also think since, since, and I'm now speaking, you and I sure. have been through it. We have a, a little bit more, Oh, I'm going to say this. And now I feel like I'd be saying something negative about professionals who haven't, which please hear me. I am not in any way saying that. Um, yeah. But I feel like we have a slightly better perspective of understanding you don't feel it now and I get it mm -hmm. and it will feel differently. And as I'm saying that, I want to take out the sentence as recovered people because there's other things that I that I work with in, with my clients that I've never experienced and, and I understand that concept. So, but it, it's, it's a hard concept when you're in it, right? To think eventually I'm going to feel differently. Right. I, I, I almost feel like we, people can't take that perspective and uh, feel it. Like sometimes I'll do this thing where if, if everybody can imagine, you know, point me pointing to my head and tapping my forehead with my index finger, I'll say, you know it up here. But and then I'll point down to my gut and say, but you don't know it down here. So we can know something intellectually, but it takes a, a lot. It takes longer for us to know it in our bones, like in our feelings and in our soul, if you will. And I don't know if people can have that emotional experiential knowing until you've been through it, of course. Um, but if you can have some trust that there's potential to get there, it can be valuable. Um, and I think that's one thing that recovered professionals can, can bring to the table. Um, I think that we need all kinds of, we need all kinds of professionals who uh, want to help with eating disorders. Um, so I, I love uh, working with other recovered professionals. There are those people in my practice. And then also there are people who have never had an eating disorder who have really uh, remarkably uh, normal, peaceful relationships with food. And that's a wonderful perspective for people to be exposed to as well. Um, so I, I definitely think recovered professionals have something uh, that's very unique to offer. And also uh, it's so good to have a bunch of, mix, of voices in the mix. I agree. And as everyone knows, I think I'm just going to change this podcast to I love Anna Kowalski because Anna Kowalski is the one 
therapist that I always go to. She's my go-to person who's never had an eating disorder, yet is hands down the best eating disorder therapist I've ever sat with. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be a lived experience. And it does bring a little a little different I'm going to say value, but I don't know if I want to, if I want to use that word. So I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to ask about your podcast and sure. what came about, how did you create this podcast? What were your, you know, what was the intentions, things like that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I guess I want to start with a qualifier in saying that it's, it's different now because I am a different person. And so, um, initially it started, uh, back in 2016, that had to have been the year. And I released it during national eating disorders awareness week. And I wanted to start this podcast because I loved podcasts myself, which is, I think a common experience amongst people who, uh, wind up hosting their own podcast. Um, but I did it because I wanted to give away free things to people who were trying to recover. Um, because one of the things that really, uh, makes me feel incredibly passionate is, uh, the idea of us improving access to care. And it's, it's really difficult for people to get treatment, um, for all kinds of different reasons, even in the U.S. where we actually do have uh, a lot of different types of treatment offerings that other countries don't even have at all uh, available. Uh, So I wanted to give people access to information that maybe they would not otherwise have. And in my initial inception of this podcast, I thought, well, it's difficult and inaccessible sometimes to go to conferences and to talk with people who are leading in the field. Uh, So I will just uh, grovel and beg and plead for them to come on my podcast. And then I can give this content away for free uh, so that people wouldn't have to feel like all the knowledge was locked up. Um, And I think over the course of the years and all the things that have happened with um, my practice growing and, um, you know, I am a person who has also Uh, a life outside of my professional work. Uh, I've done a lot of learning. And I think what it's taught me uh, that I want to incorporate moving forward is that, um, you know, I don't want the podcast to, I want the podcast to have more perspectives and more diverse perspectives. And that sometimes the people who um, I would normally ask to come on the show uh, who are great I also need to expand beyond that and really work my professional network a lot more so that we can have people who have very different experiences come on to not just, um, you know, the top so-and-so in whatever sort of niche area. So it started with the idea of, I just, I want to, I want to give this away. You know, first of all, I want to say it's funny because you said most podcasters, um, you know, love podcasts themselves. And, you know, that's how they get into it. I am not going to (laughs) lie. I think I've listened to like one podcast before I came up with this idea. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not someone who listens to podcasts. People are like, people ask me all the time, like, well, what's your favorite podcast? And I'm like, uh, recovery bites. I don't really listen to podcasts. (laughs) I don't even know. 
So I thought that was funny. I, I just was like, oh, maybe I better come clean and say, oh, it didn't happen for me. I, I think like you, people in the field are passionate about healing. And you're right. It's not always accessible. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I also think that people feel very alone and I want them to hear as many experiences possible. I also want people to know that full recovery is possible and that full recovery is still a complicated life. It's, it's still life with, with issues and, and, you know, complications and whatnot, but you navigate through them as opposed to using your eating disorder to get through them. Right. So it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun. And it's really spiritual for me to be, to be doing it and, and being able to speak to people because I felt so lonely when I was in my eating disorder. Um, So I just, yeah. So the podcast it, are you, can you tell listeners a little bit about the content of it and, and what you talk about? Like I talk about recovery and I talk about, you know, people's experiences and, you know, I, I want to get your voice out there. So people hear more voices. So w- tell the listeners a little bit about what, what's your podcast about? Oh, thank you. Well, my podcast is a mix of both guest interviews with people uh, in the field. So professionals in the eating disorder field in some capacity, you know, be they actual treatment providers like therapists and dietitians, uh, or people who are researchers, um, people who do advocacy work. Um, and then also there's also about, I'd say probably half of the episodes are solo episodes with me. Uh, and I talk about some of my, th- uh, my ideas that I think are core concepts in recovery. Um, and again, I, I do my best to make sure that those are, um, ideas that are applicable to everyone, even though of course, everybody has a really different life experience and a different eating disorder. But those are things like, uh, you know, how can we incorporate the values piece, piece from act that applies to everyone? Um, you know, of course there are different barriers for people, but um, things like how can we increase self-compassion? How can you learn to validate yourself and feel like your feelings and your experiences matter? Uh, all those sorts of things. So it's a mix of guest interviews and, uh, my concepts for recovery. I also believe full recovery is possible. I don't think that it is a, um, a fantasy. And I also don't think it is, utopia or heaven. I'm a real person with a real life and I love my life. I'm very grateful and thankful for everything and everyone I have. Um, but I, you know, still have stuff that goes on. It doesn't mean everything is, is perfect. And, uh, like you were saying, you just navigate through things. Um, so it, it is a pro recovery podcast, um, and has a focus on trying to, uh, disseminate, uh, information from people who have a lived experience or expertise in some way to uh, people who are trying to recover. Mm. What are some things that you share when you were talking about these core concepts of like validation, how to validate self, how to have self-compassion, things like that? Because I imagine right now people are like, 
don't just skip right over that, Karen. I want to hear her. So, so <laughs> can you share a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, I have a whole episode on how to validate yourself. I think it's really, it's so normal for us to go to others in our lives and to basically check out our feelings and to essentially say, is what I'm feeling okay enough? Like, does this meet some sort of threshold that I'm allowed to feel this way? Um, and there are things that we can do um, that kind of give the power back to us. So um, it's one of these things, one of the things that, uh, I know that you, you talk about sometimes on your podcast is, you know, what are some of the things in recovery that are cliches that are actually true? Uh, and one of my favorite ones from 12 step programs is actually, uh, simple, but not easy. So in terms of validating your feelings, you have to learn to trust and go with your gut and say, okay, what I'm feeling is valid. If I take this to so and so in my life and my you know family system or whomever, who tends to be invalidating or critical, and then they tell me that this doesn't matter, you have to say no. My perspective matters a little bit more. And in self compassion, uh, I I know that you uh, must be familiar with this from uh, working with all your clients, if not your own experience. But my uh, in general. I find that people who have eating disorders are so lovely and sweet and perceptive and considerate. And then they are so mean and self-sacrificing and really hard on themselves. And uh, we had to figure out a way to kind of bridge that gap. Uh, and I I feel like one of my, well, one of my kind of, uh, rules of thumb that I tell people again, simple, but not easy. All these things take lots and lots of practice, just like everything in recovery is if you wouldn't say it to a child, you probably shouldn't say it to yourself. And I know that that can sound oversimplified to some people, but I mean, truly, if we need for a kiddo to get something done or to motivate them or like, Hey, get your shoes on, you know, you're, you're running late here. Um, we wouldn't scream it at them and tell them that they're, you know, terrible and, you know, you're late all the time and what's going to happen with your life. But people say things like that to themselves all the time when they have eating disorders. Um, so we can treat ourselves with the same kindness that not only we treat other people with, but with the kindness and the kind of coaching that we need uh, as if we were as if we were kids ourselves, I think that can really, really help and be a good starting place. I love that example, because if you are going to go one step further in that example, which is if you're trying to get a little one to put their shoes on so they can go out the door and get onto the school bus and start their day and they're struggling with it and you start yelling, calling that little one you're stupid. No one's going to like you because of this. I can't believe you. Why can't you get it? Imagine the emotional state that child is now mm -hmm. bringing with them for the rest of the day. They're going to walk on that bus feeling stupid, unworthy, can't get it. They're going to sit down at their desk feeling disconnected, stupid, all these things. This is exactly how people start their days with eating disorders. Of course. Stupid. You how could you have eaten that last night? You better take, you better purge, you know, you better not eat all day. Like, and so that's 
uh, it's actually, if, if people can imagine that, that's exactly how then this person with the eating disorder walks through the day. That's how their day gets started, which mm -hmm. you, you sabotage yourself from the second you wake up. I remember the second I woke up, I started thinking about eating disorder thoughts, food, exercise, laxatives, criticizing myself, telling myself I was unworthy, being embarrassed of who I was, all these things. So of course, that's that's the energy that I went through my day with. Oh, for sure. My emotional welfare in the in the the dark days of my eating disorder, as I refer to them, like lived and died by the scale. And that was a, a really, really problematic behavior for me. I mean, I just think you don't, you don't need one, but, um, and totally that was how things would start is, you know, my, however I was, that set the emotional tone for, for the day for me and my particular, uh, eating disorder. And during that time and, uh, my point with the self-compassion is that our, you know, people are usually great at being able to see like, oh my God, I would, and I've even had clients say this out loud. I would never say something like that to another person. Or I had a client say one time, if I would have said that, if I would have said this thing that I said to myself, to my best friend, like, oh my gosh, like have me arrested. Um, and we have to help people kind of close the gap and say, okay, well, why, why are you saying it to yourself then? Um, and even if it is habitual, even if it comes from a place that is valid, like you had a super critical uh, parent and it, all these reasons add up to this, at the end of the day, if you want for things to be different, you're going to have to start doing them differently as you work through all the feelings of what has happened in the past. So you're, you're not going to have, uh, necessarily some major, major emotional shift and then say, you know what? I feel really different today. Like emotionally, I feel different today. Therefore I will never say anything harsh to myself again. Um, we kind of teach people to do that in reverse. A lot of the time, start acting as if you are a self-compassionate person and your feelings will catch up as you're working through all that old stuff and as you're trying out the new. How often, I, I don't know if you've ever run groups, but I can't tell you how many groups I've been, I've been leading and the compassion that a client will have for another client, the mm -hmm. forgiveness, the understanding, the, the, you know, acknowledging how hard they're working. And whenever I say, can you turn any of that to yourself? Any of it. Nine times out of 10, they say, no, I can't. Mm -hmm. And, and it's so, it's, it's, it's painful to watch. And I'm again, speaking for myself, painful for me to witness it because it's just a heartbreaking situation. And also because I remember being that person where I could comment positively on anyone. Yet inside, if people knew the dialogue, the bullying, the hatred I was doing, saying to myself, I, I could have, I, and if somebody said to me, you know, can you talk to your peer the way you're talking to yourself? I'd be like, uh, no, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, but I also want to say from my experience, suddenly seeing clients wake 
up, if that's the right term, like kind of waking up out of their eating disorder and all of a sudden start self-compassion. It's amazing. I, mm-hmm. Janine, I, I have seen clients starting to look inward and shine a positive light. And that, that is one of the reasons that our jobs are so, so satisfying. When you see someone make that shift, it's, it's unbelievable. Doesn't always stick, but at least, and then I say to them, but you know, you can do it. You've already given yourself a little bit of self-compassion. So now we just need to get you back to it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of a client and I'm going to be very, 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 very vague. So there's no way this person you could ever identify. Uh, but this person who I've worked with for years, um, they gave me the typical, like I have a very, uh, humorous therapeutic style because we're asking people to do things that they hate doing. And I just feel like we have to laugh about that sometimes, or we're all going to be really miserable, or at least I am. So, uh, this person would always roll their eyes at me, uh, tell me all the things I was saying was, were BS, like all, all the usual, like, uh, self-compassion, like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to do that. It sounds stupid. That sounds corny. I I'm not, I'm not game for that. And after years of working on these things and saying like, I get it. You think it's BS. I know you don't want, I know you don't want to, I know it feels like it is completely going against your nature to be nice to yourself. Do me a favor, humor me and just do it anyway. And when the person gets the motivation and the wherewithal to be able to do it anyway and to try it out and they start to feel a little bit of gain like this person did like oh maybe it's actually a little bit easier to go through a day when i don't like viciously hate myself um things really change and now this person is coming toward potentially wrapping up therapy and wrapping up some of the things that they do within our practice and um you know ha- people say things too when they really when they've really healed their relationship with themselves, I can't go back to hating myself. Or I, I really feel like this has changed. This has changed me. And then I always like crack a joke and I'm like, I know all the things that we say, all the terrible things that we therapists have to say to you, like uh, be kind to yourself and get enough sleep. Like all that stuff is true. It really is life-changing. It's just not glamorous. Uh, and it's again, simple, but not easy. Um, so those things I think uh, are definitely um, the things that pull me through in the professional work. And also I'm, you know, saying this for people who are going to listen that um, it's, it's not made up. People really do change their relationships with themselves and stop hating themselves and learn to be compassionate. And they do change their relationships with food and movement and their bodies. Uh, it, it's not a myth. It's it's not a myth and we're we're living examples of it. And you know, I people have said to me in the past, like, you know, I didn't know you could fully recover. And I said, Well, I I don't think I could do this work if mm-hmm. I was trying to get you to a subclinical eating disorder slash depression slash anxiety disorder. Like there, I I couldn't do it. If for me, just helping someone maintain 
through their life with it is is like being in purgatory, right? Oh, I I agree. That's always my goal for working with people. Do does it does everyone get there? Um no for all kinds of reasons or do I get to be I should frame it say it like am, am I the person who gets to see that journey from start to finish? Um a lot of the times no, but I do. Um and there are people from all different kinds of walks of life, all different kinds of backgrounds who recover and recover well and recover fully. And um what I always, you know, try to say to patients as as encouragement is um well why don't we just keep why don't we just keep going and we'll see where you land. Because I get I get that it it is like we were talking about earlier. It's hard to know in your in your gut and your bones that you're going to get to a place that is recovered and at peace uh, when you can't feel that in the moment. And at the same time, I don't think people should cut themselves off from the potential of having full recovery. So why why wouldn't you just throw everything you've got at it, keep going, and see how much recovery you can get? Uh, versus saying, well, I don't really think that I'm capable of full recovery. So I'm just going to shoot for partial, um, you know, uh, that in, in and of itself, you're putting yourself at risk for, uh, that being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so I, I always encourage people to, to go for full recovery, even if that, that feels absurd to think about in the moment. Sometimes what I also say to clients is let's put the idea of full recovery in a box for right now. As long as you know, that's the end goal. Let's just start with today. How are we going to move you just one step closer today? Because I think that's another thing. And what I say to clients all the time is, you know, you're not just going to be like eating disorder, 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 recovered. You're going to be like eating disorder, eating disorder, eating disorder, recover, eating disorder, recovery, recovery, eating. Like you start collecting along the way life experiences, relationships where you're actually connecting as you're letting go of the eating disorder. And so, and, and I think that, that sometimes people think it's just a switch and that's, it's going to take too long. And I say, no, every moment that you're looking forward, you're moving forward. Yep. Yep. Yes. And I also don't think it has to, of course, be related to food, body, or movement. Uh, All those things like, oh, you felt upset and you called a friend. Great. That's so recovered of you. Um, You know, all of those things really add up. And I think that that's how recovery happens is that those things that are um, from a place of self-compassion and recovery and peace start to take up more space in your life than the eating disorder does and that people are able to to let go of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I also think you pointed something out, which I, I think that what people don't understand is the hard work is 
doing the work. Like I have a client who was saying the other day that she was really suffering from body image. She was so uncomfortable in her body and she cried for like an hour. And I said to her, did you compensate in any way? Did you restrict any of your food? Did you exercise? Did you take laxatives? She said, no, but I cried over my body. And I said, that's awesome. Yeah. You're moving through it. Now, please hear me, everybody. I don't want anyone to be crying over their body, but it's okay to feel the emotions through it. It's just not okay to act on it using compensatory behaviors. So tears are phenomenal, phenomenal. What a wonderful way to move through it because the tears eventually ended. There was a little release of the the stress and energy and then the client moved on with their day. If they had gone into an eating disorder behavior, then they would have felt upset about that as well because now they've done behaviors and they're feeling upset because they're trying to go through recovery and the rest of their day is is sort of being propelled through the eating disorder thoughts and behaviors. So I think that's something that people don't understand. Like crying through something a lot better than a behavior. Yep. Yep. And I'm sure your clients have said this uh, as mine have, but I think a lot of people have that experience where they're just in the grind, they're doing the recovered things, they're, you know, trying not to use their eating disorder behaviors as much as possible. Uh, They're trying to do all these other things in their life, like, you know, using their healthy relationships and supports and doing things that make them feel fulfilled. And then they kind of have some moments here and there where they'll kind of look around and be like, oh, well, damn, I didn't really use the, I didn't really have like eating disorder thoughts like the whole first half of the day, or I didn't really have eating disorder thoughts for days or wow, it's been how long since I've used behaviors. And that's also a really common phenomenon for people who are recovering too, um, is that it's not always going to be this intentional um, slog of getting through every meal and every snack and really holding yourself back from using those behaviors. And that you'll get to this point where you're just doing so many things that are recovered and in line with who you actually are, not the eating disorder. And you'll look back and you'll be like, oh, wow, man, it's been a while. Yeah. It's always that look back when clients are like, whoa, that's another like aha moment where they're like, wow, I didn't even realize I've gone so many days without a behavior or a thought. Mm -hmm. And for them to experience that, that like quiet mind or a mind that's now filled with laughter or, you know, conflict that may need to be happening or whatever it is but no eating disorder voice. And they're like, oh God. And it's it's really powerful to be witness to. Yep. Yeah, those moments are amazing. Yeah, I know. I know they are. Janine, as much as I hate to say this, we are gonna have to start winding down. So, and and before we end, I do have one other question for you, completely unrelated to eating disorders. Of course. But before we do... Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with listeners? Is there anything that you would just like to say before we start closing up? Um, I want to say 
don't lose hope. If you're feeling beaten down, rest, ask for support, get a hug from somebody safe. Um, don't lose hope. It's not BS. It's not a tease. It's not a fantasy. It's really important to have hope that things can be better. And there wouldn't be a whole field of recovered professionals trying to help you if we all thought that this was BS and this wasn't a thing. Um, so when you're really in the thick of it and you're feeling totally worn down, rest, don't give up. I think people underestimate how how powerful rest can be and mm-hmm. how it can how it can rejuvenate emotions, body feelings or body sensations, outlooks, perspectives. Rest is really important. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that feels restorative to you, do those things. Slow it down. Don't give up on the whole deal. Everyone who's ever recovered has felt like that. Like, oh, I'm just going to throw in the towel. Like, forget this. This is way too hard. And yet we have a bunch of recovered people out there in the world. Doing podcasts and, you know. I know. (laughs) Talking, talking more than they should sometimes. So Janine, I want to thank you. But of course, before I really let you go, I do have to ask. If someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I honestly hope it would be really funny and have profanity on it. If it were in a bathroom stall, I am, I'm not sure what it, what it would say. Um, gosh, that's such a good question. I know, right? I know. It makes you think. I know. I think the the bathroom stall is throwing throwing me off a little bit, but I think uh, you know when I think about okay, if I were to really dig deep and think like, what do I want for people to know about me? I want people to know that uh, I didn't come here in this life to to fuck around. Like I'm here to get things done. I'm here to make an impact, and I'm here like I I I really think like well fortune favors the bold, you know, like do it, swing for the fences, go for it um, as much as you can, because all of those things that you're really scared to do are the things that are just going to open incredible opportunities for you in your life. Like if any, just as for the podcast example, right? Like if anybody were to have told me (laughs) at any point, at any point in my recovery um, or even my like early training when I was recovered um oh yeah this is what you would be doing later there's no way again that I ever would have believed that and I also would have said like well I don't want to do that um I'm a big introvert and of course I don't want to talk to people who would want to put their voice and their thoughts and their opinions on the internet forever like that's ridiculous (laughs) who would do that Um, but it's, it's something that, uh, no, I just wanted to take a chance on. And it's been a really incredibly enriching and beautiful, unexpected experience. So I think it would be like bathroom stall, Janine Anderson. She didn't come to play. (laughs) I love it. I just want to point (laughs) out, like you allowed all of us to go through your, your process to get to 
the actual bathroom stall statement. Like <laughs> we we all went through it with you. It was really beautiful. And then here it is. <laughs> you come here to play. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, thank you very, very much for being part of this. Thank episode. you so much for having me. Yeah. And thank you for your work. Thanks for spreading the message for everybody. It is more than my pleasure. So all right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.